you're not going to go home from the end of the day and be like, oh man, I did the best thing today. I have this story. I can't wait to tell you. I checked the oxygen tank under the bed and it was full, right? That's not going to be like, that's not going to be like a seminal moment in your life, but it's the small things like that, that add up over time that are going to let you on average, save kids. If I want to be a type of person that saves kids, which I do, then I got to do that small work, even if it's not going to make a story out of it. And so understanding that concept and actively starting to look for small work, things where like, hey, I don't know how to handle making it through a pandemic. I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't know what to do. I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to map my concept of myself as a person to what I have to be to survive this. Okay, fine. But what small work can I do today to nudge myself closer to that? So that if I die tomorrow, I can look back on today and been like, yeah, okay, I tried to set some stuff up. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our format for this episode is a little bit different than normal. So just about a year ago, my often co-host, Dr. Andrea Austin, and I recorded episode 15 of the podcast called Coming Back to Purpose. In that episode, we talked a lot about how we viewed our personal sense of self and our calling and our mission in the context of what was really then the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. So now, a year later, we want to take a moment and pause and reflect, and we want to look back at this year and how we've lived through it and what we've done. And our conversation is, is pretty wide ranging. We talk a lot about the strategies that we've used to hold on to our sense of self during this year, um, things varying from sort of like what it took to even get us through the day to how we were able to find joy in the middle of it. There are a lot of details about what we went through and, and really a lot of our thoughts about what's going to come next. Um, I think it's a really important conversation. It's also really raw and there's a lot of deep personal stuff in there. Um, so I hope you enjoy it from that aspect. There's one hiccup with the microphone, which is that it was way too close to my mouth. So unfortunately, there's a little bit extra of me breathing in that, but I think you'll excuse that and get through it. Before we jump into the episode, a reminder, we are getting very close to the release of our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and it brings together mental models, tools, and lessons both from my own practice of emergency medicine and also from other arenas and experts at performance under pressure, like what you're used to hearing on this podcast. It's a book I wish I had when I was starting out as an emergency doctor, and I am honestly just really thrilled to be able to share it with you all very soon. To learn more about the book and to check out a sample chapter, head over to emergencymind.com book. Okay, all that said, let's jump into the episode. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Dan. It's great to be back on The Emergency Mind. Absolutely, Andrea. Nice to see you. So today's episode is going to be a little bit different for our listeners. We're going to be reflecting on the last year of our lives, both as people and emergency physicians working during the COVID-19 pandemic. I would encourage our listeners to go back and listen to episode 15 that Dan and I recorded at the beginning of the pandemic. We anticipated that it was going to be a challenging time and we tried to provide a framework for our listeners to think about going into this pandemic. But suffice it to say, I don't think either one of us were prepared for the gravity of what would follow, the number of people that we would lose, the gravity of working with these incredibly ill patients, the trauma of 
watching them die, trying to care for the ones that we could, and speaking with their families, often only via the telephone or through an iPad. This year has been a lot. And while there's so much that we could reflect on that is negative and and heartbreaking, there were also profound moments of personal growth. So through that lens, we want to walk through this past year, take out the kernels of knowledge that, that we can share with all of you, and find some good that that came out of this. So on that note, how are you doing, Dan? You know, it's it, it's incredible that it's been a year. I was just looking back um, episode 15 that you and I did together called Coming Back to Purpose, where we were just starting to sort of be in the pandemic. And I think we both realized there was this, there was this need to help frame and reframe our day-to-day sort of existence in the middle of the pandemic and to to sort of provide some some context and some grounding. And I, I know we both felt the need for that and felt like maybe we could help some other people with that framework um, as we were just getting into it. And it's And it's amazing looking back on that because so many things have happened in this year and the way that I know I personally have felt and interacted with um, with what's going on has gone through so many stages and phases. And it's, it's almost funny looking back on that. Cause that was so early in all of this and, and what's happened has changed and sort of evolved so much in that. Um, so I, I guess I'll start by saying like, like, I'm so grateful to be here a year later to have lived through this and to continue to live through this because certainly, you know, no conversation about performance in the pandemic or about how we're holding up is complete without just pausing for a moment to acknowledge all of the many, many people that we've lost and that we didn't have the right tools for and that we, that didn't get better. You know, I'm really grateful to be here with you a a year later, being able to talk about this. Agreed. And the weight of that is hard to even convey. I mean, thinking back to a year ago, I would have never imagined that we would have lost over 500,000 Americans and the weight of that. And we haven't even had time to process what that is. It's been a really incredibly hard year in, in so many ways. And, and I hope we can um, dig into that a little bit as we do this. I think uh, it's going to be a challenging conversation. You know, I mean, it's a lot and, um, I think you and I have never been uh, afraid or or backing down from sort of throwing ourselves out there to see what happens, but it's uh, <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Well, maybe since we're already kind of down this this path of considering the the weight of the pandemic, um, I want to jump in and just ask you what it was like working in Los Angeles, and I think most of our listeners are familiar with. Los Angeles' story during the pandemic. Um, for a little bit of background, you know, in the spring, we certainly saw COVID cases in Los Angeles, but nothing like what was happening in New York and Italy. And then as the year built, uh, cases climbed in the summer, and we thought that was a significant peak. 
And then the fall happens in winter. And I did not work in Los Angeles for our, our listeners. I have moved to San Diego. So I was an outsider looking in and obviously have a ton of people that I know and care tremendously about that still work in Los Angeles. So can you try to put into words um, what the last few months have been like in Los Angeles? Sure. I, I mean, I think it's worth saying from the beginning that um, everybody has faced challenges this year and has faced pretty a unique set of challenges. And while for some of us, that's meant totally disrupting the way that we live our lives, others it's meant dealing with grief and the horror of losing people close to us. And, and for others, it's been working in various phases of this. And however you're working in it and whatever you're feeling as you're reflecting on this, like that's, that's, you earned that and that's okay. And, uh, you know, so I, I can certainly talk about my perspective on it, but um, I think that that is uh, tinted almost with the thought that there are so many other people that have worked in so many different ways during this. And um, the slice of what I've seen, the slice of what any one of us has seen, no matter what role we occupied is so small compared to the um, bandwidth of what everybody has been going through. So for me, working in the emergency department, predominantly in uh, LA County, but also some in, in some, some smaller places, uh, in a smaller place, sometimes was surprisingly normal. And it felt like what working in ER has always felt like. And, and sometimes it was incredibly different than uh, what I think any of us had been used to, both in terms of the number of deaths that we were seeing, um, the severity of the patients that we were seeing, and then also in sort of the moment-to-moment -moment struggle to, to help people, to feel like we had anything to offer. And I think one of the more challenging things has been this sense of, well, what is it that we really have to offer people right now? And generally speaking, you know, our jobs in the emergency department are, of course, hard and challenging, and we see death and suffering, but we usually see it from the standpoint of a human and a team that has a variety of tools that we can put into play to make a difference for folks. And in some cases, that felt very different in this past period of time. It felt like we didn't have that much to offer as a, as a physician, as an ER doctor. Of course, we, we still had you know, quite a bit to offer as a human. And so a lot of what we were doing, spending time making sure people got a chance to talk to their loved ones on an iPad before we intubated them and talking to family members before we put their brother, mother, sister, father asleep um, to put a breathing tube in. Dealing with the fallout of that and of talking through with each other how to handle the moment to moment sort of how to handle the moment to moment sort of um, weight of those decisions and of those actions and also how to handle re-entry right like how do you go from that to go back to your home to your spouse or loved one or whatever and to sort of re-enter into the normal human mode of society and then go back and do it again tomorrow and then go back and do it again tomorrow that was a significant challenge to put it extraordinarily mildly
Yeah, you bring up something that I wanted to talk about today, and and that's the idea of this slow-moving disaster that COVID-19 has been. And a lot of us in emergency medicine, well, A, and the name is emergency, so we're used to dealing with critical situations. And then a lot of us have dealt with mass casualties in a different context, and most of those have a very steep spike in acuity severity of patients, the stress that you're under. I don't think any of us, um, well, maybe some examples of people in war-torn countries for years have dealt with something on this time scale. So we're a year into this and, and we're not completely out. While there's some rays of sunshine, this is still a sustained disaster. So what have you done personally and what have you been talking about with your residents on how we keep up the endurance. Yeah, and and first, I think it's important to say that that this has been hard, and that struggling is part of it. And I'm just going to keep saying that because I think that you can't get that message out there enough that struggling is part of responding to something like this, and that it's not a simple switch where all of a sudden you can just be like, "Oh, great, now I'm fine, and I'm going to go about my business like this isn't happening." But instead, it's sort of an evolving target where the challenge you're facing is changing and therefore you have to change in order to continue to perform and in order to continue to survive and be a human. And, I, and that's been, first off, just noting that, just, just being able to say, hey, this is hard and I'm going to have to do things differently was a huge piece of it. That I had been doing something useful with my time useful is a weird word to use in that sentence, right? Because I'm not necessarily talking about like, you know, did I accomplish a a goal that advanced my culinary skills or something? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, but I don't mean useful on that level. I mean, if I were to not make it out of this pandemic, if I were, if I were to die and have to account for my time at the end of my existence, how would I look backward and say, okay, I I've made, I've made a difference here. I've used my time well. And personally, I, I really like to think about this idea of, of what I what limited I understand of the um, uh, sort of ancient Egyptian conception of the afterlife, which is that you die and your heart gets taken out and it gets put on a scale and on the other end of the scale is a feather. And the idea is, did your heart balance that feather? And I, I'm sure if you're listening to this and you're you know into Egyptology, then I'm just butchering this and I apologize about that. But my, my understanding is that your job as a human is to balance that feather at the end of your life, or one conception of your job is to do that. At the beginning of this, I started really considering that in a, in a very detailed way to say, okay, well, what if I don't make it out of this? What would, I, what would I do that would balance that feather? And then I tried to work backward and deconstruct that and say, okay, well, what could I do every day to feel like I was pointed towards balancing that feather in the middle of this? You know, I took a, a few weeks or a month or two to sort of sketch out some ideas and talk to people about it and, and ended up coming up with a couple of things that if I did every day, I would know that if I didn't make it to the next day, then I would be balancing the feather. And then I was just absolutely ruthless about doing those things. I would wake up in the morning and my job would be to do those things. And I would go to bed knowing that I'd done those things. And then I just spun that wheel. And I, you know, I evolved it over time. I kept playing with different versions of it and reading and sort of expanding and exploring. But that was my structure to make it through this period of time, was to try to link my day-to-day actions with my vision of what it meant to be a human and to be the best version of myself that I could, knowing full well that I might not make it through this. 
Now I'm really curious what those things were. <laughs> sure. So it, it depends on what version of it you want to use. There's there's some early versions and some evolving versions, but they all had a couple things in common. One of which was to, in some way, uh, meditate or train my mind, which has the extra link of sort of connecting myself with with the deeper version I I feel of myself as a human. And in, in talking to other people about this, like some people might substitute the word prayer for meditation and that for whatever version of it that they want. One piece of it was a physical piece that I would that I would train myself physically in some way every day. And I got super granular about like what counted and what didn't count for these things because it, it's sort of what it took, that discipline is what it took to get it through it. I would do something to build something larger than myself which often meant working on the emergency mind or sometimes meant teaching residents or sometimes meant working with my closest friends and family on how they were feeling. But the job was to build something outside of myself. And then I would take a moment uh, every day and find something that I was grateful for or felt joy about, and I would write it down. And so I have this running list of months and months and months of things I'm grateful for. And it's become this really fascinating pattern. Uh, it, first off, there's a lot of data about how amazing that is for folks, that idea of writing down what you're grateful for. Uh, Martin Seligman and the whole School of Positive Psychology does a ton of work on this. His book, Flourish, is really worthwhile if you haven't read it. But there's some there's some studies that if you if you write down what you're grateful for every day and something about the act of writing it as opposed to just thinking about it is, is important that that over a short period of time folks that do that tend to have higher scores on basically any metric you want of of joy or self fulfillment or anything else like that and so I, I have these great lists of like things I've been grateful for during the pandemic coffee shows up a, a wide variety of times. Uh, Turns out I really like palm trees. There's like all this like fascinating stuff that comes out about like, you know, when you actually spend the time to, to write down what you're joyful for. But but that was essentially the structure, which was work on myself, work on something bigger than myself and do it every day. Wow. I, I'm just, I have goosebumps. I was not that disciplined, uh, but I've done some of that this year. So I've returned to journaling which reading some of the early entries during the pandemic are quite fascinating. And I think it's powerful to look at the growth that mm. happens. One of the things I learned this year and, and heard that I'd like to share with the audience is um, Jim Collins is a very famous um, business uh, author. And he every single day writes down if it was a minus two, minus one, zero, one plus or two plus day. And I've been doing this since November. November really coincided with the case counts of COVID going you know, through the roof. And what's fascinating looking back at my days is the vast majority were still a one plus day. But I think if you ask most people what their 2020 was like, the initial answer is terrible, horrible, worst year ever. While collectively that's, that's probably true. If you look at the individual experiences though, there was a lot of joy. At least I can say that about my own life. Yeah. It's funny. I was actually just listening to Jim Collins's interview with Tim Ferriss on the Tim Ferriss podcast, literally yesterday on, on my drive back from a hike. I would definitely recommend listening to that. I forget what episode it is, but we'll figure that out and 
and put it somewhere. It, Collins talks about how he builds this spreadsheet where he tries to jot down notes of what he does in a day in some sort of a vague conception. And then also records this like sort of like mini Likert scale from negative two to positive two, and, and then is able to go back in time and sort of cross-reference, well, hey, what do I do on positive two days, on plus two days? What does that day sort of look like? And to create that, that framework for it. And he's able to use that as a decision-making tool to help him try to figure out where to spend his time. So I, I'm curious, Andrew, did you did you do that part of it also? Like, did you try to cross-reference like what the the plus or minuses of your day were with what you were doing that day? Yes, and our audience can't see this, but I'm actually going to hold up and show Dan my system. So I use an electronic calendar because it's convenient, but I've started printing out a paper copy of my calendar, which Dan can probably barely see. Wow. But what I do every day now is I score that day and then I can very easily go back and see what activities I was doing that day. So now I have data back to November mm. and I've been saving all of these calendars and putting them in my journal. So part of the journey I've been on this year is coming to grips with knowing that our time on this planet is finite to the best of my knowledge. What am I doing? Where, where am I spending my time? And is it uh, serving a bigger purpose, which going back to our podcast a year ago, purpose is something very important to me. Am I helping people and am, am I feeling fulfilled? And, and the fulfillment thing can sound like a selfish thing, but the truth is if we're not using our innate abilities and enjoying what we're doing, we are going to burn out and not be able to continue. So that's what I've been spending a lot of time on this year is how do I get all of those various elements to align? We're physicians, you know, we, we make decisions based on data, or at least I would like to think we do. And before I started using this system, I was making a lot of decisions based on my memories hmm. related to something. And what I found out for me personally is sometimes I have very rose-colored glasses about certain things when I look back on them. And other things I just have a I tend to be negative on my memory associated with it. So for instance, January was when our COVID numbers were extremely high in San Diego. So I was thinking about January and I'm like, oh, that was such a terrible month. You know, I had the worst, you know, shifts were terrible. There were so many COVID patients, but then I look back and there were very few days that I scored as a minus two. So why am I thinking about that entire month in such a negative context? And there's so many interesting things to to dig into from there. And, and I think that an important piece of what you're saying is that, you know, our, our recall, our, our revision of our history of ourself, the way we tell ourselves the story of ourselves and what we're going through is important and and like deeply meaningful and also sometimes totally suspect to sort of other things that are external to what we're doing. Right. So if you look at the data about how, like, uh, when you're remembering an event, the things that happen in the last couple minutes of the event take tend to take a really outsized proportion of how you actually view the whole thing. 
we're not going to go into, but there's like a fantastic study they did about colonoscopies about this. That's like totally weird and fascinating and great, but how, how you handle the last little bit tends to shape your vision of the whole thing. I think that, that what you're saying about needing the importance of data to give you the structure to make a decision is really similar to what I'm saying when I realized I'd be under such stress and I'd be under such pressure that I might not be able to make an accurate judgment of what I was doing. And so I had to lean on and rely on these frameworks that I built intelligently, I hope, but at least consciously to help me make these decisions and help me figure out what the right thing to do next was. And my suspicion is that that's well, certainly that's not something that you and I are unique at. And my suspicion is that a lot of folks have done something similar to that over this period of time. So I guess I'd ask, how did you start doing that? Like, what is it that that poked you in that direction or or prodded you to to start that process of of building a framework around yourself to help? So I think it was a lot of different things coming together at the same time. Um, One of the things I did during the pandemic is I actually worked with a professional coach. I was making a career transition and I was leaving the military and starting my first civilian job as a physician, you know, and it was a big change and working with a coach on some specific goals that I had in mind forced me to really look at my my time more. The other thing I think that's interesting about emergency medicine and other shift workers can relate to this is I never know when I'm going to have time. I don't have an admin day. You know, some people know that on Thursdays, I always have that day protected for work. With our schedules, you know, we work nights and weekends and what I found myself doing often with just the electronic calendar is I, I couldn't plan ahead. So having this paper copy has forced me to project more, um, looking at what's my, my goal for today, this week, month, three months from now, um, and being more intentional about my time. Another thing I took away from the pandemic is time moves in some ways fast and in in some ways slow. For me, looking back at these calendars and adding in my journals, I'm experiencing a lot more personal meaning to my life because I'm slowing down enough to process some of these events, you know, particularly intense patient interaction and shift Um, If it was something that happened with a family member this year, I just had more time to really think. And and that's probably also a byproduct of just being home more, right? Because normally I traveled at least once a month. There just wasn't as much space as I've been able to carve out this year. Well, been forced to carve out this year. Before all of this, had you done something similar like that, like, like certainly, you know, certainly you're somebody who plans out your, your goals and things like this, but had you ever done a different version of this? Like, I don't know, I'm going to use the word personal accounting. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but, but some version of that kind of thing. No. And and what I would say is that I've always been a future looking person, you know, what's my goal for this month or this, this year. And in some 
way, shape or form this year, it's much more crystallized how I do that, but I never really looked back too much, you know, it's kind of like, oh, well, last week happened. Well, now, you know, I have data associated with last week and I can use that to inform this coming week. And, and actually, you know, I'm also using a, a guided uh, journal and it asks you, what did you learn this past week? What was challenging this past week? And what I'm starting to notice is what I found challenging maybe three months ago isn't challenging now. And I can actually see that growth. So then what's the next step as you, as you work with that? So you have this database that you have that, that you're starting to build and to, to continue to build, and then you have some, a vision of sort of what you want to do next, but what's the, what's the middle step in there? How do you leverage this knowledge of yourself differently to, to change things? One step is really taking a better accounting of how I'm spending my time. Um, I think a lot of us tend to start with the premise of yes. And now with all this data, when I'm presented with an opportunity for something, I'm much better at looking at, A, is this something I'm, I'm good at doing? Um, B, do I actually have the time to do it? And C, is it um, aligning with the data that I have about things that make me happy. And so I I have a much better system for making decisions about what I'm going to do going forward. You know, it's such a theme of all of the people that come on the podcast that we talk about how important it is to have some objective metrics of how you're actually doing at something, right? Like whether it's, whether it's the, um, you know, a jujitsu coach or, or an ER doctor or whoever, like having the data to be able to mine about what you're doing uh, is such a huge part of it. And, and I, I think that's something that I'd really like to get better at as I, I look at sort of like what I learned from this year and what I'd like to do next, if I'm lucky enough to keep living, is to continue to get better at that, to build that better system of really um, trying to create better data and better feedback loops around how I'm performing. It's sort of ironic that, that, that like, that's something that's come out of this year is, is the knowledge that, okay, that's doable. And also something I need to actually go physically build. What we've all realized, and we, we touched on this last year is this sense of mortality that we don't have you know, infinite amounts of times and, and COVID has taught us that maybe we have even less time than we expected. You know, we better make some good decisions about how we're using our time. I don't want people to think what I'm saying here is don't rest. Part of my schedule is rest. And, and again, the audience can't see this, but Dan can. All those blue days that are circled are days that I don't have clinical shifts. So I'm very cognizant of what days of the month do I not have clinical responsibilities. And then my number one thing when I see those blue days is I need at least one day per week, preferably two, but we'll go with one that needs to be rest-based. So those are days that we plan a nice meal. We do, you know, something outside. 
but those are non-working days. And that's the day I build in first. Hmm. And then I will add in on those non-clinical days. What else can I do? Again, knowing that my time is limited, I can't do everything based on what my goals are for this next year. And what do I have to do in the next you know, quarter to get there? That's where I add things in. Um, where before, I think I would have this running list that I was always trying to jam stuff in, but without that deliberate contemplative approach behind it. Well, for me, that just goes back to the the whole, uh, the stoic idea of locus of control, you know, something that you and I talk about quite frequently, that that you can't control how much time you have in the universe and and you can't control uh, a lot of externalities in terms of when your number is up. But you can you can control whatever ability you have to choose what you do with that time, and the choice to proactively put things in place that support you as a human and that help you to to really again to use Seligman's word to flourish. I mean that's an that's an incredible choice to make, and certainly within our, within our locus of control. And and I think that even earlier versions of Dan, specifically like resident Dan, would probably still agree with that sentence. Because even though I had certainly less control over my life as a resident than I do now, I still had some. And those decisions about what I'm going to put in there in the time that I do have, you know, equally important to the decision I'm making now about that and and recognizing that boundary and saying, okay, well, this is what I control. Great. I'm going to build this piece right here is, I think, incredibly rewarding. Uh, both in the short and and long term. So I want to pivot for a moment. And if you had to pick the number one thing that you learned this year, what would it be? It's the value of the small work. The value of doing the small, seemingly unglamorous things that add up to much bigger pieces of both who I am and what I do in the world. And about the importance of lining up that small work with my my sort of deepest sense of self. And a lot of what, you know, if you asked me before the pandemic, what were the things I enjoyed doing the most? Or what were the things that I loved spending my time doing or made me the happiest? You know, I would I would say spending time with friends and family and and travel and exploration and probably jujitsu would be super high up on that list. And almost all of those things disappeared immediately when we really started doing this. And, you know, it made me step back and, and aside from the moments where I'm like, am I physically going to survive this? You know, spending time on thinking about like, well, who am I as a human? It, It really got me to think about this idea of small work. Like what are the small things that I do every day, wherever I have control and what am I pointing myself up? What am I pointing myself at with those small steps and with those really tiny things? One of my favorite books I read this year, it, perhaps unsurprisingly, based on what I just said, is Atomic Habits by James Clear, which talks about the a lot of the small sort of actions that we can take and how they relate to bigger things. I'm going to butcher this quote, but he says something like, "Depth creates stories, but consistency moves mountains." I'm, I'm, I know that's not quite right, but but it's close. And his idea is that like, you know, incredible, intense focus 
within a short period of time on one thing will create a wonderful story that you can tell, but consistently changing your life in the way that you do the small day-to-day things is what ultimately will move a mountain. And that really came uh, viscerally clear to me this year in the sense that when I look back on it, I see not only the pain and suffering, but also the incredible uh, track record of hundreds and hundreds of unbroken days of building myself and trying to build something that mattered that would outlast me. Can you make it a little bit more granular what you think those small tasks are that, you know, really matters? I think I'm trying to understand like the way that you do it or the way you think about doing the small tasks. Well, I mean, here's, here's an ER example that I was working with, with some of the folks in the, in the peds unit the other night, right? So we're thinking about how to set up for a resuscitation when a really sick person comes in. And so sort of, you know, the, the big work is like, how do you resuscitate a child and how do you, how do you handle sepsis? How do you handle trauma? These sort of like big concepts, but the small work is what it takes for you to actually be able to do that thing, right? So, okay, well, how do you handle uh, a sick child that you might have to intubate. Well, okay, you have to have your airway tools. Okay, well, where are your airway tools? Well, they live in this cart over here. Okay, well, go bring the cart over to where you're going to need it. That's small work, right? Small work is knowing how to set up suction and getting it ready to go. Big work is understanding conceptually how suction fits into an airway algorithm and therefore like what size Mac blade you should use and therefore like how to handle whether or not you should intubate a child. And we concentrate a lot on big work because so much of our knowledge is encapsulated in, in big work, right? And, and it's encapsulated in these sort of larger ideas, but it's, but it's the small work that allows us to make the big work happen. Did you move the airway cart near where it needs to be? Did you check the suction? Is the oxygen tank under the bed full in case you have to move that person later, right? That, that's, not, that's not, to use, to go back to Clear's analogy, like that's not a story that you're gonna tell somebody unless it goes horribly wrong, in which case you're gonna tell that story. You know, you're not gonna go home from the end of the day and be like, oh man, I did the best thing today. I have this story I can't wait to tell you. I checked the oxygen tank under the bed and it was full, right? That's not gonna be like, that's not gonna be like a seminal moment in your life, but it's the small things like that that add up over time that are gonna let you on average save kids. If I want to be a type of person that saves kids, which I do, then I got to do that small work, even if it's not going to make a story out of it. And so understanding that concept and actively starting to look for small work, things where like, hey, I don't know how to handle making it through a pandemic. I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, I don't know how to map my concept of myself as a person to what I have to be to survive this. Okay, fine. But what small work can I do today to nudge myself closer to that? So that if I die tomorrow, I can look back on today and been like, yeah, okay, I tried to set some stuff up. My fridge is off to the left of me over here. And so I have these two pieces of paper up in my fridge. Uh, one of them is a note from my parents from the beginning of the pandemic that says, we love you, brighter days will come. And I just, I looked at that all the time and I'm so grateful that they sent that to me. And it's been such a, a, a thing for me to see that over and over again, that idea that like, I think they're probably right. Brighter days will probably come no matter what's going to happen next. And, and having that sense that like there will be something through this that I want to set myself up for has been really, really meaningful. And the second is a quote by Aristotle that says, excellence is not a singular act, but a habit. 
I have those two things juxtaposed, juxtaposed on my fridge here, weirdly with a tape measure uh, that has a magnet on it. I don't know why that one's up there. But this idea that excellence is not a singular act, but a habit. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized that, that you know, if that's true, then all of the little things I'm doing every day are what will make me decide at the end of the year if I was excellent this year or not. And what will set up the foundation for me to be excellent next year. And so I, I started asking those questions. Well, what is the small work I'm going to do this year? And some days it's super simple, right? It, you know, at the beginning, it was like, how do I even keep track of, am I doing these things every day? So, okay, I built out a system to keep track of those kind of things. What's the small work around meditating? Or a better example, what's the small work around gratitude? So part of that is knowing that at the end of the day, you have to be able to write down some things you're grateful for that day. At the beginning, I was like, that's so much pressure. How can I possibly feel grateful for anything? Everything is like, you know, exploding all around me all the time. But that, that's not actually true in the way that you said too, that they're not all minus two days. And starting to do the small work of allowing yourself the space to think about things you're grateful for, even if you can't pick one just yet. That's so powerful. Deeply grateful for the chance to have done that this year and to keep notes on that and to sort of to sort of let that process, to trust in that process of the small work. What I want to end on um, is really kind of a, a springboard into what I would like to spend more time on uh, this year with the emergency mind. I want to talk a little bit about burnout. For our listeners that aren't in emergency medicine, before the pandemic, the data on burnout was that about 60% of emergency physicians experience burnout at least once during their career. My best book of the year is Burnout by the Nagoski sisters. They're mm. two uh, sisters with their um, doctorates. And, and they wrote this phenomenal book. The key takeaway principle that was really like the game changer for me and really the thesis underlying their book is when we have a negative emotion or experience, it's not complete until we physically discharge it. What they use is their main concept behind this is when you think about the way our bodies evolved is we evolved, you know, living out among animals. And so if we were fighting for our survival and, you know, a, a lion was running after us, we had a stress response and cortisol was released. And that was helpful because we needed to run for our life. And after we had ran for our life and assuming we lived, we were tired and we had just physically discharged all of that stress hormone that was in our body. Fast forward to modern life, that doesn't happen naturally for most of us. For the most of my shifts in the emergency department, I don't feel like I'm under physical threat. Every once in a while I do. Uh, but most of the time it's more of an emotional, um, intellectual challenge that I'm having. So, you know, for me, a concrete example of that is a conversation with a difficult consultant, um, somebody that perhaps doesn't understand why they need to see the patient or is adversarial in their interaction with me. And, and that is difficult for me. And I think some people maybe are built differently and wired differently that they are not as drained when they have a negative interaction. But for me, it's extremely draining. And what I started to notice after I read this book is after I have a conversation like that, I have learned over years 
that I generally stay calm. I'm honestly, most people would think I'm pretty nice. I'm firm, but I give a lot of grace to the person. I often assume that maybe they're having a bad day. Uh, but if it gets really contentious by the time I get off the phone, even if I was able to maintain a really neutral voice, use a lot of uh, conflict resolution techniques, I am physically, I can feel it in my body, that weight of that stress, that sometimes I have chest tightening, sometimes I you know, feel like tired or fatigued or my muscles hurt. And most of the time, I don't have an opportunity to physically discharge that. I have to go on and do something else. So what I've been trying to work on this year is what do you do with that energy? And of course, there's things, you know, on a weekly basis, your exercise routine, and that's, that's very key. And that's something they talk about in their book. But what I haven't answered yet is what do you do immediately when you maybe have a few minutes that you can sit at your desk and process it a little bit, but you know, you can't really leave. You can't like go on like a 20 minute jog. I have a couple of questions for you, Dan. So one is burnout, something you've experienced. And two, if what, what's your reaction to kind of, I don't think you've read this book yet and just kind of hearing the, the thesis and premise. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't read it. I, I definitely want to read it. Hearing about this, I, I think that um, there's enormous. I think that there's a lot of truth in the in the links between motion and emotion and mindset and processing, and that's something that you know I, I first got introduced to when I was a lot younger through practice of martial arts. The idea of of the links between motion and mindset and emotion, and you know, I have since seen a large amount of scientific data about that as well in, in both directions um, in terms of the way that emotion affects motion and how motion affects emotion and, and, and everything. You, you know, I, I'd be curious to learn more about this idea about discharging something. I'm not sure how I feel about that. I think that designing a system that helped me better process a difficult event would almost have to make me better and more resilient and less likely to burn out over time. Because I, in some sense, burnout is related to a lot of the small things that happen like that over the course of shifts and that build up over time. I, I also think that you know, if you take the human factors ergonomics approach to it, that there's a lot of things that exist outside of us in the way the systems are designed that put weight on us in unhelpful ways. So it's not, it's not out yet, but a podcast that I recorded recently with uh, Eric Antonsen, who for a long time was part of the NASA team working on what he describes as the human system in a lot of journeys. Uh, including potentially to Mars. So he describes the human system as as us, essentially the people. And for a long time, as he says, there was this mindset that, oh, well, we'll just, you know, we'll take away risk and variability from the engineering system, and we'll just rely on the human system to sort of suck it up a little bit. And I think that there's a lot of that that happens in emergency medicine as well, right? Things are challenging, and the human system is just supposed to 
to account for it and recover from it. So uh, without going too much in that path, I think that there's a lot in the human factors ergonomic side that we need to think about, about burnout also, that some of it is a personal practice and some of it is a structural practice. Yeah, and that really aligns with what's coming out of the NIH that the first, you know, I don't know, maybe the first 20 years, um, once we realized that burnout was a problem in healthcare professionals, the focus was on the individual that you should meditate, you should do yoga. And now burnout 2.0 and, and what the NIH is advocating for is a systems-based approach and acknowledging that, yes, there are some individual factors, but most of us start out motivated, wanting to do well, and these systems issues are really what's, what's draining us. So, you know, we're going to talk about this more throughout the year, and I'm excited with some of the guests that I'm going to have on, um, you know, later this, this spring, we'll have Tracy uh, Sanson on, who's a thought leader on, on burnout and healthcare professional. But the reason I wanted to end on that note for today's podcast is the pandemic is not over. So, so maybe to bring this full circle, how we usually end on the podcast is what's the challenge for our listeners going forward as, as we begin year two of, we don't know how many. Uh, <laughs> I, I do think things will be better, but I, I do think the, we have to give, a, give up on the clock um, related to this pandemic. Um, so perhaps that's my challenge um, to the listeners is I think a lot of us have been waiting to feel whole, waiting to feel healed until the pandemic is over. And that day may not come. We may have COVID with us for the rest of our careers. Challenges. Stop saying that things are going to be better when the pandemic's over. Start figuring out a way to thrive with the time that we have. I love it. That's a great challenge and, and one I will personally take up also. Any other parting thoughts or challenges? I think that how we react to this type of pressure and this type of friction really has a lot to do with how we see our place in the universe. Not to get super deep about it for a second, but I think that you know, if it's just one bad day, you can shrug it off and keep going, even a bad week or a bad whatever. But if you start redesigning the way that your life around you works, then you really need to ask some pretty deep questions about what you think your purpose is and are you lined up with it? To me, the challenge is, what are you gonna do now that I've said that, right? You can go and you can keep doing what you were doing before, or you can step back and say, well, man, how do I start to reconceive of what my purpose is and to line it up with what I'm doing? And it's something I'm certainly still working on is, is tuning my everyday actions towards what I feel my deeper purpose is. And you know, whether you want to do that through, and I, I'd encourage you to experiment, but whether you want to do that through something like what I was describing, where you identify two or three things that's that's a structure that you're going to do every day and then like ruthlessly do that structure every day or whether Andrea had something like what you described based on sort of a Jim's Collins approach of I'm going to rate days and then dig backward to make sure I'm pointing myself in the right direction. Um, you know, if, if we're lucky enough to have lived through this first phase of it, I think that this can be a wake up call in the sense that what we do with the rest of our time 
is something that we can choose a lot more of. And so my challenge is to, to do that, to start thinking through this question of am I pointing myself in a direction of what I feel like is my deepest purpose, but then really to make that explicit and small about what you're doing today and tomorrow to make that happen. You know, as we close the podcast out, I think it's interesting how we again return to purpose, which was a big premise of how we started out a year ago. And the other thing that I think is just so interesting as we we sit and reflect is I would have never wished this pandemic on us, on me personally, but I am very thankful that it has caused me, I almost in a way feel like, especially as healthcare professionals in which, you know, we were contracting COVID at a much higher rate than the general population. It was almost like we got a a tiny sip of what it must feel like to get uh, a terminal diagnosis. And I am forever thankful that it has caused me to have profound reflections on what type of person I am and how I'm spending my time. So again, wouldn't choose it, but in this, at least being in this spot right now, knowing that we're still alive and to have this, this knowledge and growth that we've had, I think it, it has forever changed the generations that have lived during this pandemic. And in a way I'm, I'm optimistic about perhaps because we've all had this little sip into mortality in a more granular way that we all live just a little bit better. Brighter days will come. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at the Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.